Well, um, as you heard earlier, Pastor Brett is on the other side of the earth uh, in the South Sudan there in Africa. And uh, this morning, he preached at Calvary Chapel Nemuel. And that is the church that is there in the South Sudan that's been planted as a result of the work of far-reaching ministries. And uh, you see a, a, a picture there of that congregation. It looks to me like uh, that's a great place to be. Um, it's kind of cool, too, that we have brothers and sisters on the other side of the earth that love the Lord just like we do. Yeah, so... I invite you to continue to pray for Pastor Brett. He is, uh, he is there for another week, and uh, I know that the Lord delights in using him. Um, I'm Pastor Brad, and I'm a whole lot shorter than he is, and, uh, but I'm here to uh, help us dig into the Word of God this morning. Let's pray together again. Lord, we thank you so much for your blessing and for the opportunity to to study your word in greater depth this morning. We know that there are treasures to be found here that um, truly often elude us. And I pray that you would illumine those treasures for us. Help us see with greater clarity your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. And as you do, I'd just like to reflect a little bit on the song we just sang. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And I, I hear those words, and I have to ask this question. Can that love save us? Can the love of God really save us? Some of us are nodding. Some of us are asking, is that a trick question? <laughs> well, I have to say that, that very often we think that it is indeed the love of God that saves us. Truly, it is his love that makes salvation possible. Oswald Chambers writes, the great miracle of grace is that he forgives sin and that it is the death of Jesus alone that enables the divine nature to forgive and remain true to himself in doing so. The love of God means Calvary. And Calvary is another word for the, the hill that Jesus died on. It represents his death. The only ground on which God can forgive me is through the cross of my Lord. There his conscience is satisfied. The thought here is that, that God is righteous altogether. And he cannot tolerate the presence of sin. And who are we but sinners, right? And yet God chooses to call us his children. How can he do that? Just because he loves us? If it was just because of his, his desire for us, 
he would not be true to himself. But in his death, Jesus satisfies the penalty that belongs to us. In other words, the the, uh, penalty of sin, the wages of sin, according to the scripture, is what? Death. Death. Right. All of us as sinners are deserving of death. But what Jesus has done has brought us into communion with him by virtue of the fact that his death paid for our sin. It's a marvelous thing. And that's, that's really the, the picture of the gospel. We want to unpack that a little bit this morning. Verse 2 of the hymn really dials it in for us. He took my sin and my sorrows and he made them his very own. That idea has left me scratching my head for a long, long time. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that Jesus became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And it leaves me wondering, okay, how in the world can that happen? Jesus, who is the picture of, of righteousness himself, How in the world can he become sin? Well, that's what happened on the cross. All of the sin of all of humanity was heaped on him, and God allowed his son, the Lord of life himself, to experience death on our behalf. He took our penalty. The other half of that verse is that we might become the righteousness of God so that we might become the expression of God's absolute rightness in him. That's a head scratcher for sure, isn't it? That's because God in his glorious wisdom has seen fit to look at us through the justification of the cross, through the rightness delivered to us through the cross. Verse two of the hymn, he took my sin and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful is my savior's love for me. That love is the impetus for the action of the gospel. Christ died for us to reconcile us to God, to to pay our debt. He was buried and rose again to enable us to live new lives in the power of his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4 is a really good synopsis of what the gospel actually is. And the gospel means good news. And the good news is this. It's not just about how God feels about us, but it's what God has done for us. It's the evidence of his love for us that is more than words. It's more than good intentions. It's it's more than promises. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus deals with the reality of who we are. It's not fake news. It's It's fact. It's verifiable. It's not, 
It's not spin on a good idea. No, it's, it's telling it like it really is. It's not, it's not fuzzy feeling. It's reality, concrete reality. The reality is this. We have all sinned, every single one of us. And the consequence of that sin is death. It's a death sentence for all of us. But the good news is that Jesus died in our place. He took our death. He took our consequence. If I was a salesman, I would say, plus, there's one more thing. He raised from the dead and he offers us his resurrection power to live a new life. He not only pays for our debt, but he gives us all that we need to live a brand new life. That's the glory of the gospel. And it deals with the reality of who we are. Romans chapter one, starting in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, in your mind, what is, what is the opposite of, of being ashamed? Being proud? You know what? That was my first, my first thought too. But when I unpack this word in the Greek, it's, it's not so much about being proud. Because quite honestly, pride, the scripture talks about being puffed up in pride. What happens? What can happen to something that is puffed up like a balloon? You can pop it, right? doesn't take long for that pride to be eliminated. Rather, the idea of not being ashamed is being confident, being assured, being absolutely secure in this truth. The gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus pays our debt and empowers us for a new life. That is what Paul is saying. He's really absolutely secure and confident in that truth. First Corinthians chapter one, he writes, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is the power of God. That word power, um, many of us know that it comes from the Greek word that, that we get dynamite from. It's interesting here, however, that what what is described here, the word power in this context doesn't simply mean blowing things up. 
It doesn't, it's not just a destructive power. Rather, it is the ability to accomplish something. It is the ability to actually get it done. And what do we get done? What gets done? What gets done is salvation, our salvation, being saved from the certain penalty of death and saved to the absolute purpose of living eternal life. Verse 17, again, for in it, in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In it, inside of it, part and parcel of it, the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness or the rightness or the justice of God is revealed. It's uncovered. It's displayed from faith to faith. Now, what in the world does that mean? From faith to faith. Well, it means from the beginning to the end, from the first believer to the last. This is what God is doing, what he has accomplished. It is written there in verse 17, but the righteous shall live by faith. It comes from the book of Habakkuk, or some say Habakkuk. It really doesn't matter. It's that word uh, in, that, in that prophet. He says, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. It's interesting to me that, that Paul pulls out the second half of that verse and says the righteous will live by faith. But the context of that verse in the prophetic word is behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Now, why in the world? What is that idea? We, 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 uh, we put pride on a, on a pedestal in this country, don't we? It, it, to stand up and be proud is a great thing, right? We wave all sorts of things, and we're proud to be this and proud to be that. But the, the, the prophet here says there's something that's not right with that. The proud, his soul is not right within him. Some, something is askew there. There is this juxtaposition of pride and righteousness, the proud versus the righteous person. You see, pride has absolutely no place in the life of a person who is seeking to live in righteousness. And if there is an, an ingredient of pride, quite honestly, righteousness isn't possible. Notice, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed or uncovered. God's righteousness is put on display in those who deny the temptation of pride and respond to him humbly in faith. 
The display of God's righteousness is inextricably linked to the personal personal humility because, listen to this, personal humility is the environment in which faith can exist and where it thrives. On the other hand, pride actually poisons faith. Okay, Brad, wait a second. You're getting off into this place of putting all these weird nebulous ideas together. Come back to earth, please. Okay, let me come back to earth. If you dissect it just a little bit, what is, what is pride focused on? It's focused on self. And what is faith focused on? God. In this context, we're talking about our faith being in God himself. It's beyond ourselves. They oppose one another, faith and pride. They can't coexist. It's like oil and water. That's, quite honestly, that's why when pride is perceived in the, in the life of somebody who, who says that they are pursuing a life of righteousness, it, it feels repugnant to us. If we are in this place of, of seeking honestly to, to live a life that is pleasing to God and we see pride manifest in another person's life who says they're doing the same thing we are trying to do, it shows up like a big red flag, doesn't it? And it's, it's off-putting. It's repugnant to us. In the end, pride in plain, simple English, is stupidity. Pride is nothing but stupidity. It's an attempt to deny the truth of who we are. And that's why Paul continues this way in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God sounds ominous, right? Well, it is. It is ominous. But if we unpack that word here a little bit, in the original language, it it has this this connotation of of deep desire, even to covet, this deep desire. And it's associated also with grief. So it's this, this grief of of not being able to have what I really desire. It is not this notion of an indignant outburst of vengeance that we typically associate with the word wrath. That's not what is being described here. Rather, the wrath of God is his utter abhorrence of sin And seeing that in our lives, but desiring relationship with us at the same time. Knowing that because of who he is in righteousness, that is that can't the two can't mix. To me, that's a breath of fresh air. 
to know that God desires us and his wrath is, is, is seen when he can't get there because of his own righteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Well, it's a stuff that doesn't reflect God's character. It's the stuff that dishonors him. A lack of reverence for him. It's a kind of a violation of our, our obvious duty to God to give him honor and unrighteousness, he says. What is unrighteousness? Well, it's, it's, it's injustice. It's that, it's that thing that, honestly, it just shouldn't be that way. All of us have been created with this, this, this center that says it's got to be fair. It's got to be just. What do you hear from your children when you decide you can do this and you can do that and you want to do that instead? It's not fair, right? We hear it all the time from little on up. That's because God has put that in us. And fairness, we think, is related to justice. And justice is, is who God is. He is the ultimate justice. So unrighteousness is the idea of being unjust. It's curious to me, however, it's also related to the idea of being out of harmony. How many musicians do we have in the room? Oh, come on. Yeah, we've got a few. Harmony is something that Musicians understand, and they understand what is in tune and what is not. When, you are, when you're tuning a piano, it's very interesting to me if you've ever watched a piano tuner. How do they do that? How do they decide when it's in tune? Their ear is trained to actually hear vibrations, and when it's out of tune, the vibrations get wider. And it goes wah, 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 wah that way for them. But when it's in tune, there's no vibration whatsoever. And this idea of, of unrighteousness is this idea of being out of tune. It's, it's not lining up. God says, or Paul says, the wrath of God is expressed toward those who are ungodly and unrighteous. So what does righteous and godly behavior look like? That's, that's kind of the obvious question. How do we know? What, is that, what does that look like to us? Well, Titus chapter 2 gives us a, a, a kind of a clear picture, and there are multiple lists within the New Testament that help us understand what this godly life should look like. Paul writes to Titus, starting in verse 2 of chapter 2 in Titus. He says, older men, older men. Now, are there a few of us in this room, older men? 
That applies to us. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Older women. Are there a few of you in here? Yeah. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to too much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women. We've got a few young women in here, right? Yes. That they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge your young men. We have a few young men in here. Oh, there's one right over there. He's 60 years young, right? Uh, Young men. Be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified in sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing to say about us. Urge bond slaves. What in the world is a bond slave? Well, in this context, it is a person who has devoted themselves to their master, even though they've bought their own freedom. They once were a slave, but they've bought their own freedom by virtue of their good service to their master. And now that they are free, they go back to their master and they say, I want to serve you the rest of my life. I'm a bond slave to you. We could call that the really good employee, maybe. He has a word for them. Bond slaves, be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, that's a, that's a pretty broad stroke picture of what godliness and righteousness looks like. There's more to it than that, but we get to some really concrete behavior, don't we? And... In short, we're talking about behavior that looks like Jesus. It just so happens that yesterday, I, I read My Utmost for His Highest. It is as a, a devotional book. It's a, a book assembled by uh, Oswald Chambers and or, or assembled of his, of his teachings. just so happened that yesterday his teaching was this, relating to this scripture in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, 
turn the other to him also. What does behavior that looks like Jesus look like? His comment is this. Naturally, if a man does not hit back, it is because he is a coward. Many of us have been taught that. But spiritually, if a man does not hit back, it is a manifestation of the Son of God in him. When you are insulted, you must not only not resent it, but make it an occasion to exhibit the Son of God. And then he says this, you cannot imitate the disposition of Jesus. It's either there or it is not. You see, the real character of a person is revealed in crisis. How do we respond to crisis? How do we respond to being attacked? The character of Jesus will be seen in us or it will not be. It's not something that we can easily put on or simply take off. It is something that is born in us by virtue of the transformed life that Jesus affords us. Again, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That word suppress is interesting to me. It means to hold down, to hold fast or retain, to quash. Now, the truth is not something that that can be changed. The truth is the truth. But it can be held down. It can be silenced, if you will. Ron Knox says, wickedness desires, de, uh, denies truth, its full scope. In other words, wickedness says, well, truth can apply here, but it doesn't apply over here. No, truth, if it applies here, it also applies here and every, everywhere in between. It is not something that is, is, is something we can acknowledge to be truth here, but not be truth over here. Those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, in what ought not be, that which is wrong, that which is out of harmony or not fit. We tend to see this verse, I think, and those following as, as pertaining to someone else most of the time. I mean, after all, we're, the majority of us in this room are, are believers. And we, we, we tend to look at these verses as, well, that applies to unbelievers, to others. But would you look carefully at verse 18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. I don't know about you, but to me, that is 
a loud sounding invitation for introspection. I have to look at myself very closely. Is my behavior in any way ungodly or unrighteous? Do I suppress or hold down or quash the truth in any way? If so, know this, that God is not indignant with you. He is not vengeful toward you. But as we talked about earlier, his wrath is, means that he is grieved and he longs for you to return to honoring him by releasing, not suppressing the truth, releasing it to do its purifying work, to point out areas in our lives that don't honor him, that should not be the way they are, that are out of harmony with what is right and what is fit. Now, this is true for every single person on the planet. Going on, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Paul is talking here about self-evident truth. Evident in itself without proof that it is truth. With, without the need to demonstrate it. It's obvious it's self-explanatory. If a self-evident proposition, a self-evident proposition is one that is known to be true by understanding of its meaning, according to ordinary human understanding, human reason, it's, it's, it's like this. If I give you two Snicker bars and I give you two Snickers bars, how many do you each have? Two. You sure? Oh, she's not so sure. Well, if you decide to give your two Snicker bars to her, How many Snickers bars does she have? She has four. Are you sure? You're, you're positive. This is not a trick question. It's plain. It's obvious. It's absolutely clear. 
And that is the idea here, that this is plain, clearly evident. It's, 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 uh, it's not something that we have to debate. The word self-evident has been enshrined in the declaration of our independence. Many of you can quote it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What the writer is saying is, is that this is undeniable. It's absolutely clear. Wikipedia says this has been called one of the best-known sentences in the English language, containing the most potent and consequential words in American history. The passage came to represent a moral standard to which the United States would strive. Self-evident truth is part of our history as a country, as a culture, and it's intrinsic to our morality as a people. The understanding of self-evident truth is unveiled here in Romans. It is plain and it is apparent to all who are honest with themselves because it reflects reality. God has revealed to all humans something of his eternal power and of his nature. Yet when people refuse to believe, the result is their understanding is darkened. To turn willfully against God and move from light to darkness, the blindness that follows is self-imposed. So we have to ask this question, how could any thinking human choose to deny what is plain and, and apparent and thus intentionally blind themselves to the truth? How could that be? Well, the reason is this, because thinking humans are also feeling humans. Let's get real here. We're all guilty. Every single one of us. We're all guilty. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're all insecure about it too. In our own capabilities, we're insecure. And too often we try to compensate for that guilt and that insecurity by puffing up our pride. And as, as was mentioned earlier, pride is revered in our society, isn't it? Sometimes we, we prop up our self-sufficiency by demanding that we're right, dominating others, creating fear in the lives of others. Most of the time, this is just compensation for our, our own insecurity. And these cause us to deny the truth that is plain and apparent in order to protect ourselves from humiliation 
for the sake of self-preservation. Self is at the center of a person's life who is unable or unwilling to acknowledge what is plain and apparent. The result is this. We end up with distorted thinking, even delusional thinking. Some people fall into habits of catastrophic thoughts. It's going to be the worst. It's going to be the worst because this happened over here. It's going to set everything into motion and it's going to end up being the worst. Some people can't stop thinking about it. They obsess about something. Others will absolutely just deny what is plain and apparent. I will not believe. I refuse to acknowledge this reality that's right in front of me. If we're honest, I think most of us can find some of that activity in the circumference of our life. All of us are capable of distorted thinking, of distorting what's plain and apparent, what is the truth. You've heard the expression, uh, your truth and my truth. Have you heard that recently? Well, that's your truth. That's his truth. And this is my truth. Well, wait a second. Truth can't be divided up that way. It's your feeling. It's your experience. It's your thought. And it may differ from this person. But the truth is the truth, period. And it cannot be taken apart. It cannot be separated. It cannot be undone. The truth is the truth. We are in a, in a culture that wants to deny this truth or that truth. Apart from what is plain and apparent, And it happens every, in every, uh, every field of, of study. Everything from, from science to politics to medicine. All of it is subject to that crazy twisting that goes on. Too often, distorted thinking is, is picked up and even promoted as fact when it's really fiction. You've heard of groupthink or the crowd mentality. People get swept up into a way of thinking just because so many others around them are thinking the same thing without really looking at the truth. Sometimes, quite honestly, that's very unintentional. We get caught up in that because, dare I say it, we're just ignorant. We don't know. Sometimes, however, it's very intentional. Designed to be deceptive. Name-calling. 
labeling someone such and such. It's a tactic of a bully, typically, right? And we begin to, if we're not careful, begin to believe that label instead of looking at the reality of who a person is. The psychology of war is all about that. Think about it. World War II, we dehumanize our enemies by calling them Japs or Krauts. Because we all know that killing another person is not what God designed. So we dehumanize by labeling and name-calling. It happens in advertising. It happens in politics all the time. Sometimes it's public, and it's designed by those who are, are doing the distorting for the sake of coalescing power. Sometimes it's very, very personal. Distorting reality becomes our attempt to defend or, or minimize our personal distress. Think about that. We distort what is actually going on so that we can avoid being distressed about that. A repeated pattern of that type of distortion can be very destructive, not only to the individual who's doing the distorting, but to people around them. Now, all of this happens every single time for the sake of self-preservation. We fear losing ourselves, our security, our status, even our sin that's become our habit. All of this is self. And it's ultimately idolatry. Verse 25, there in Romans 1, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry starts with I. And lie has right in the middle of it, I. But Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The truth is this. We're all flawed and needy, and helpless, and powerless. 
unworthy and guilty and so, so easily deceived by our own obsession with ourselves. But Jesus calls us to honesty, to humility, and honoring him. And that is a deliberate decision to bravely face the reality of who we are and honestly what we're capable of and not capable of. And yielding that to God and trusting who he is and what he is capable of. Apart from, apart from that yielding, we end up like verse 22 and following. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their own hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen and amen. What can save us from that kind of end? What can save us honestly from ourselves? Thanks be to God for the gospel. It's God's real answer for real issues. It's Jesus' death that pays our real penalty. It's Jesus' life that makes it possible and gives us power to really live differently. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation. In Romans 5, Paul writes, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We're reconciled by his death. The penalty's paid. The balance sheet has been reconciled. It's totaled up and it is completely satisfied. We're saved by his life. The power of the resurrection enables us to cease living for ourselves and live for him. Again, as Paul wrote to the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. 
Today we're going to share in communion. And this symbol is, in many ways, the symbol that sums up the gospel. The reality of our desperate need of God, the reality of our sin, and the only, the only way to pay for that sin is by death. How can we then live? We can live by virtue of the fact that Jesus died in our place. He took the penalty for us. That's the reality of it. And equally, the life that he lives in the resurrection is that which he also gives to us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you... Hmm, you don't mess around. You get down to brass tacks. You do deal clearly with the reality of our absolute need of you. For without you, Lord Jesus, for without your death, we are destined for eternal death. But because of your death, as we receive it as our own, Lord we are destined for eternal life with you. We thank you for that. And this morning, Lord Jesus, as, as we partake of these elements, our desire is to honor you as you are to be honored, as Lord and King, and to remember your death, your suffering, and yes, even your resurrection. We pray, Lord, that you would bring all the pieces together, not just what we, not just what we think, but Lord, what we understand in the depths of who we are, even this morning as we partake of this, what we call the Lord's Supper. It is yours, Lord.